Welcome to TNT with Teresa Quinlan and Reese Thomas. We are friends from across the pond on a life evolution. We want to bring you topics that challenge your status quo, guests that help you think differently, and nuggets of wisdom that spark being. Being what? You. Authentic you. Today we welcome Kristen A. Sherry. She is a best-selling, award-winning author, globally recognized career expert, creator of UMAP Profile, which won a 2020 Career Innovator Award from Career Directors International. She's a speaker, she's a trainer, she's an author of an international bestseller, UMAP, as well as Your Team Loves Mondays, right? Which also was an award-winning. She's a managing partner of UMAP LLC. She uh, helps certify coaches, offer career services, uh, helps HR professionals with the UMAP coaching facilitated qualification. So much to dive into here. Really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to TNT, Kristen. Thank you, Reese and Teresa. This is a long time coming, wasn't it? Yes. They're always the best though. and takes like one or two times to get it right. The anticipation. Exactly. All right. So as you know, we often ask our guests to share a little bit about what's on their heart, what's on their obsession in a good way, their passion. And I particularly would like to hear a lot about your latest books uh, as we delve into the more children's aspects of, of, of the kind of work you've been doing about values and acknowledging your self-awareness and your gifts and but transferring that into um, the children's arena rather than the adult arena, where there's too many of us already competing in that space. So let's delve into this. So give us a bit of a background of your story, how you came to this and, and why this particularly is, is your new focus. What I'm most passionate about to to answer your first question is people maximizing their potential. I feel like so many people live their life leaving so much on the table in terms of what they were capable of and their purpose. And a little bit of background about me is I just had a very windy, (laughs) one of those careers that people would look at you and say, wow, you had a lot of identity crises. constant pivots and changes in direction. And I was searching, I was searching for who I was. And when I discovered who I was, it was a game changer. What I did best that other people need most that aligned with my values and really fulfilled me. And I couldn't keep quiet about it. I wasn't happy to just do that for myself. I needed to share it with the world. And that's how I ended up sort of pivoting to writing books And I pivoted to writing for kids, although I am still writing for adults, um, because the adults would say, I wish I knew this when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So true. Your description of the zigzag, the searching to discover who I was, who I am, who I want to be for that potential maximization is it. It's necessary. We have to do that. We don't come out of the womb and go, ta-da, I know exactly what it is. It's part of everyone's process is the journey to figuring it out. And what it might be when we're 16 could be different when we're 26, could be different when we're 56. (laughs) That can also evolve as we choose to continue to learn about ourselves. So I'm curious in your experience and what you've discovered is what might be some of those big items that get in the way of people wanting to maximize their potential? So there's a a few things. First of all, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. So people don't really know who they are, what they bring to the table, what they're capable of. And then we have these 
mental games we play with ourselves. Well, who am I to do that? Or I could never do that. We create these arbitrary rules that then guide our lives and create these limitations and really leave us stuck. And I would say another thing is we underestimate the things that we're really good at and think, oh, that's not special. Anyone can do that. That's no big deal. And I think for women in particular, we tend to bat away compliments or that feedback that we get because we we develop a sense of self from somewhat from observation, but largely from the feedback from the world to us because we trust that feedback more than we trust ourselves. And sometimes that feedback is malicious from people who are jealous, uh, self-protecting uh, for people who don't like the idea of you changing and going out into some context they're not familiar with. And sometimes people mean well, but they really are not good at identifying potential in people or really giving advice that aligns to who you are or your values and they speak out of their own values. So when people give you feedback that you ask too many questions when you're a child, uh, they're probably not a curious person themselves or they wouldn't relate to that type of behavior, right? So I think that there's a number of layers. Some of it is external, some of it is internal, some of it is how our brain works. We tend to have to really use our prefrontal cortex where strategy, reason, creativity, logic, we have to use that very intentionally. Otherwise we resort to using our amygdala uh, of our brain that, uh, that really derives from fear and protection and staying safe. And so there's a lot of layers to this. So really discovering what you're capable of and then stepping out and being brave to take the risk to do it. Although it's not as risky as people think. Mm -hmm. Because when you really know who you are and what you're good at, the likelihood of success is quite high. But all of those layers are overwhelming. And so I think people sometimes don't have the, the belief, the desire, the persistence, even the plan, or know the actions to take. And you have to have all of those things. Okay, a few things come up there. When I was first sort of starting in this sort of game in terms of coaching and consulting, it was all about, maybe even before that, when I was working in corporate, it was all about working on your weaknesses to try and give a fuller picture around the circle. And then through various you know personal development things and then people I spoke to, I came across a radical, a radical idea where it was, don't worry about those weaknesses, just focus on your strengths and see yourself you know skyrocket. So both ways have merit in my mind. I wanted to know, how that kind of sits with this idea of the UMAP. And you also said about how when you're inside the bottle, you can't see the label. Or <laughs> right. How, how does all that kind of work together in, in this UMAP revolutionary ideas that you wrote about all those years ago? Well, when I was looking for assessments to help me, when I was coaching, I was looking for assessments to help with clients. And I noticed a few things. First of all, they weren't particularly actionable. They weren't necessarily intuitive. And also I found a lot of assessments had a lot of negative things in them. And if you look at the origin of assessments, they were originally created or used, I should say, by the military to weed out what they called undesirables, who was likely to suffer from PTSD or 
go AWOL <laughs> or something like that. Who was not going to, to thrive in that environment? And then the corporate world thought, oh, we could use this to weed out undesirable employees. And so that's where the negativity bias came in. And now producers of assessments have worked to, to try and make the language more palatable and, and more positive. However, most of them still look at one sliver of a person. And I find that people are very nuanced, very complex because you have a lot of things that are below the surface of someone's behavior. So it's like an iceberg. You can see about 10% of an iceberg above the surface and that's the behavior in a person. But below that, what leads to that behavior are their experiences, their critical thinking skills, their emotional intelligence, their values, their personality, their strengths. It's a very complex recipe that explains who Teresa is, who, who Reese is. And I find that so many assessments are very reductive. Oh, you're dominant. So you're, you're bossy and you like to have your own way and you're not much of a team player. And then that person says, wait a minute, I, I am a team player. And the person is coaching to the assessment, not to the person. And they say, oh, well, maybe you should get some feedback from other people and thinking, oh, this is just their dominance. That's why they're resisting this information. When really what you don't know is that person's number one value is collaboration from their experiences. So people can learn and grow. And to your point about the weaknesses, I, I do agree that you'll get more return on investment when you focus on your strengths, but there are times when you need to look at weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And those are when the weaknesses are an overuse of your strength. So you're a responsible and accountable person, but my way is the only way. <laughs> so that accountability becomes used on the dark side, if you will, instead of the shiny side. So your strengths aren't gonna work for you if you're overusing them. So you have to look at those, those um, outcomes and are you really getting the desired outcome and those that you're working with? The second thing is, are they interpersonal weaknesses? Because I don't care what an incredible strategist, visionary futurist you are, if you have a lot of interpersonal weaknesses, which really clicks into the emotional intelligence piece, right? You're not gonna be successful. People aren't gonna value your strategy because they can find another strategic partner who also plays nice in the sandbox. So I do recommend when the weaknesses are interpersonal, just, well, this is how I am, isn't really going to fly because I don't care if you have a very solitary role, you're going to have children, a partner, parents, siblings, you can't get away from being around people, right? The grocery store clerk, your barista, yeah. your dry cleaner. Yeah. How you is, treat the Uber driver. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I love that. Which brings us to, there's more than one element that impacts our success. I love that you brought up assessments because sometimes in our work as coaches, it's like, what assessment do you use? You're like, as many as I can get my hands on. <laughs> Plus, was often way more beneficial is the individual self-assessment. Like where mm -hmm. do they assess that they're at and why do they give themselves that assessment? That can be much more enlightening than an assessment that spits out to them. Oh, by the way, you're an introvert. Yeah, I already knew that. Right. <laughs> Most people already know anyways what they are or aren't. I love that element of riding the edges 
learning how to ride the edges of the dark side or the light side as well, mm -hmm. which can sometimes pull us off balance. So what, what I'm curious about is you said this beautiful line, we, we create these arbitrary rules that get us stuck. When you've done your own assessments, what did it tell you about which arbitrary rules you were stuck in? So interestingly, I had a mentoring relationship with an executive coach that I admire very much. His name is Steve Lashansky. He was the first one to point out the, my rules. I didn't know what my rules were. And that's what's really important is what are the rules that you're telling yourself? Because a lot of times we don't even know what they are. They're going on in our head playing like this daily recording. And one of my rules was I can't be a world-class executive coach. I used to be an executive coach before I moved into career coaching and now coaching coaches. But I used to, I used to say, I can never be a world-class executive coach because I don't have a master's degree. That was, that was one of my rules. And the mentor that I was telling this to, who was a top coach, globally record coach, author, he was the chapter president of ICF International Coaching Federation. So they clearly thought he was competent. Um, didn't have a master's degree, who I'm saying this to, <laughs> which I didn't know because I didn't care because it didn't matter. So I didn't look at his education history. And that was a really eye-opening moment when he said, I don't have a master's degree either. And I was very embarrassed <laughs> initially, but it, it was a wonderful, experience to have even though it was embarrassing because it made me see in a very tangible and palpable way that that rule wasn't true so why was I applying it to myself that was probably the first rule and as far as UMAP goes it really revealed a lot about the quirks of my uh, weaknesses my strengths and and some of the things that I said you know I'll never be good at this I'll never be good at that I could never do this. I, I could never write children's books. I used to say all of these things. But one of the things that was really interesting in looking at my UMAP was I used to say, you know, I'm not an extrovert. I don't, I don't relate well with people because I was awkward in high school. I was a bit of a loner. I, I like to read all the time. I like to go to the library and surround myself with books and that's how I would spend my time. And I wasn't good at injecting myself in networking conversations. And so I had this narrative that I told myself that I'm not, I'm not good with, with people, but my number one talent is being able to influence people. It's maximizer, being able to move people into roles or positions where their greatest potential can be lived out. And I thought, well, I'll try this putting myself out there on social media thing. And before I knew it, people were resonating with the messages that I was speaking. And I started on this weight loss journey and like half a dozen people are now exercising and send me their pictures. And I thought, well, geez, for someone who's not good with people, I sure am really good at getting people to move into very positive places in their life. And so I had to let go of that narrative. I'm not good with people. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I'm following on Instagram. I've seen some of those pictures and just, yes, you've been, uh, it's been an amazing uh, journey. So I'm definitely, I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people with that. So you said something interesting. You said overplaying your strengths is a weakness. 
Now, when you say it like that, it sounds so obvious, but I'm sure there was many people who were listening who have never even thought about that. But like, there's only up, there's no possible bar from this. I can only get stronger and better and all this kind of stuff. And I wanted to tie the word strengths back to the children's books, the gifts, obviously slightly different to values. Although we could have a long discussion about, you know, strengths, gifts, values, what are the differences? What are the nuances? Do you believe that those strengths are innate and they'll always come through? I guess that's kind of what you work with on an adult, but for a child, you obviously at a much earlier nurturing stage, do you think those strengths are yet to be realized or consolidated or fully formed? I'm not sure what age the book is is aimed at. I'm judging by the pictures, I would say, you know. The kids that seem to really get it and do best with it are around, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. But you can read it to a five-year-old <laughs> and they'll they'll enjoy the concepts. But the kids who really can make work of it are an eight-year-old is an ideal person. So my daughter's seven. She said to me the other day, mommy, sometimes I wonder why I'm alive. I think that this desire to discover who we are and what our purpose is in the world is seated in us, right? And so also as a companion, the talents to fulfill that purpose are also seated in us. They're, they're genetic. We inherit our strengths from our biological mother and father. And to, to your question about, can, can you just grow them and grow them and make them tremendous <laughs> strength? And most of the weaknesses that we think we have were negative feedback we received as children. Mm-hmm. So your high in empathy and you're told you're too soft, you're a crybaby, you need to, I mean, I have a, I'm writing a book called You've Got Quirks that helps essentially children realize that everyone has things they're embarrassed about or that they feel shame around. And those quirks often become empowering distinctives to people in adulthood. One of the people in the book is a Latino man, which in that culture, men need to be men, right? And he is high in empathy. And he was told he was a girl, which I hate when people say, stop being such a girl, like that's a, a bad thing. Um, but that's not to knock his family. That's, 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 that's not just cultural. I mean, that's really common for boys who have empathy or compassion to be told they're like a girl boys don't cry. He was told all of these things. And so he thought his empathy was a weakness growing up. I have friends who were told they talk too much and communication is something they're very good at. They're, they went into acting or communication consulting. People who were told their head was in the clouds and they were daydreamers are often very visionary people who use that talent in their work every day. So that is one of the challenges is how do you overcome believing these things are good about you when your grandparents, your parents, your teacher, your peers told you these were things that were bad about you? I I will never forget. I was 29 years old. I was a programmer. I was sitting with my boss and he said to me, Kristen, you're too enthusiastic. You're too enthusiastic. And for years, I translated that as you are unprofessional. And so I really put myself in this mental straitjacket every meeting, making sure 
that I didn't have high energy levels, that I didn't talk too excitedly. And I really put a lid on my enthusiasm. But now, as somebody who puts herself out there on social media to inspire people, who writes books, the enthusiasm is what people appreciate. Probably not most about me, but it's definitely something people do appreciate. And I had to rediscover that because those early influences caused me to suppress what would one day be something people appreciated. And that's why I have this passion around helping children and not only helping children, but helping the adults in their life who mean very well, mm -hmm. but end up creating this baggage for people, for, their, for these kids when they're trying to do their best. So for example, you have a, a child that's very adaptable. They're easy to get along with, they're flexible. And someday they'll be great handlers of change and they live in the now and they live in the moment and they can pivot on a dime. But then their, their parents are saying, you know, you need to have a plan. You need to think about your future. You need to buckle down. You need to do, you need to do all these things that are just not how that child is wired. So they forever think that this ability to be flexible and handle change is this bad thing because they're not these planful. But then the kids who are disciplined are told, you're too rigid, you're too structured, you need to be more spontaneous, you need to have a little fun. We can't make anyone happy. <laughs> so why not just be who we are? And that's why I'm going, going after the kids so that they can, can say, you know what, I'm proud of these things about me and I'm always gonna remember these gifts and look for opportunities to use them because a raw talent, a seed will lie dormant if it's not cultivated. And that's what they really need to do, cultivate those talents so they become strengths so they can get near perfect performance when they use them. Which in all likelihood requires as the parent or the individual is to do some bang up work on the inside job <laughs> to make sure they're not projecting those things externally. So something that came up while you were describing that is the pinhole view of a label. So when I say you're one thing that it becomes this very laser focused definition of what that means. And there lies, of course, within our lives, the ability to have a standard deviation of a definition. Like we can expand that standard deviation of what being a maximizer even means, what being a pushover even means, what being empathetic means, what being an introvert means. There's so much danger that lies in the binary of I'm either this or that, and I can't mm. both. When the truth, of course, is if I can use the word and, I'm this and I'm that, yeah. The world of deviation, of standard deviation, of gray, of opportunity, of possibility opens. And within that becomes way more options for maybe what I want to do in life or how I want to show up in life and how I want to put my talents to work and achieve whatever that full potential is. When you're working with an idea for a children's book, because these conceptual ideas for adults, perhaps easier to just say them as you would say them. How you, yeah, how do you bring them from that space of the adult space into the, the children's world of being able to take it and, and use it? So that's an excellent question, Teresa. I'm glad you asked me that. It was a very humbling experience when I wrote the first, so I've just 
just finishing up book five, but my very first book, it was a very humbling experience. I thought, well, how, how hard is this going to be to write 800 words? I'm used to writing 50, 60, 70, 80,000, that this would be a snap. But you have to be able to say abstract concepts in more concrete terms because children are concrete thinkers. So saying a lot of words in, a, in fewer words and addressing big concepts in small ways, but also you have to appeal to two audiences because often there's a parent who's buying the book or reading it with the child. So you have to be able to write to two audiences simultaneously. So it was really challenging to do that. But what I've done to be able to do that is talk to children and I run the concepts by them and I see, you know, are you understanding this? And then I send my books to beta readers and I ask them, what words did your child struggle with? Were you able to contextually explain those words to your child or was it over their head? What did they struggle with? What did they enjoy? What did they not enjoy? And you might have to change the entire story arc. You might have to change a word um, when you get feedback, but it's really important to, to have parents and children beta read your books if you write books for children. I would say I've gotten better at it as I've, as I've written more books of saying things, but you can't, and it's funny because then people will write reviews saying that your books are cheesy if you, if you try to infantilize the children, it turns the parents off. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very delicate balance writing for the two audiences indeed. I love how you explain that story that the abstract concept turning into a concrete concept. I'm seeing how, you know, you're used to dealing in this adult world, dealing with all them and you need to transcribe it somehow, transmute it into this symbiotic relationship with the parent and the child, if you like, to, to appease to both ones. So I'm wondering, in doing so, you've learned to go from A to B. I'm wondering if that process has also taught you something about going back, what you learned from a child that helps you go back to writing books for adults or, or dealing with adults or yeah, there's a there's a, an obvious flow from one to the other I'm wondering there must be some kind of other opposite flow that's also taught you and uh, really yeah absolutely <laughs> it's really reinforced the importance of storytelling for all yeah. ages so when I read the feedback and the reviews it's always adults writing the reviews and sometimes they share what the children thought but mostly they share what they thought the reviews have been really interesting they talk about their own childhoods when I write children's books and the stories of our childhood affect our adult experience. So I find when you speak to that child wound and you address that child wound in, in the adult, the story really resonates. Mm -hmm. And so rather than getting caught up in practical tools, here are the practical sterile steps to transition your career, to change your mindset, to whatever, I really need to remember to share the stories because that's where people say, oh, I see myself in what you're saying. I see myself in that. And maybe I didn't even realize that I needed to work on this area in my life, but I identify with what you're saying. So this must be something I need to give attention to because some of the things that we really need to work on are subconscious, right? So we don't necessarily know that we need this until we identify ourselves in the story. It's like plucking the string internally. So we get the resonation inside that 
helps us to say, I'm not the only one, which yeah. is very critical for us to move forward to doing something differently or being willing to actually look at, look at it in an objective way when we can see it resonated in a story that connects to our own experience then we're willing to also take a look at what did that person do to move from where they were to where they are now. And maybe I'll try one or two or three of those things. Yeah. Looking at other people's experiences. This is why I'm such a proponent of mentoring relationships mm-hmm. because those people have gone before you and you can take aspects of what they've experienced and apply those lessons, not what they did necessarily, but apply the lessons to your own life it's really important to always be in the middle of a mentoring sandwich where you're mentoring someone else and someone's mentoring you because when you're being mentored, then you can turn those lessons in and and pay them forward to someone else. It's such a beautiful place to be right in that, the meat in that sandwich. My book that's coming out soon, any day now, (laughs) my book that's coming out, Maximize 365 was interesting when the beta readers read it. One of the beta readers said, there are areas in here that it never occurred to me to develop. So sometimes we don't even know what our true need is. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Just that thing I said earlier about it's hard to read the label when, when you're inside the jar, it goes far beyond just knowing our strengths. It's also knowing our blind spots and we don't know what we don't know. I hate that saying it's just so cliche sounding, but it's absolutely true. Which is why we rely on other people often to be able to tell us, hey, are you aware? I'm like, I had no idea. When I was younger, my sister would tell me, are you aware of what your face looks like when the coach is telling you or giving you feedback or explaining a new play in basketball? Because we were both on the basketball team. I'm like, no, I have no idea what it looks like. And then she tried to describe it to me. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So then that year, out comes the yearbook. And in it, there's us on the court. And she's, that's the face right there. And I said, oh, that's my thinking face. Like I'm trying to integrate what he's saying into how will I use that? So I'm really trying to conceptualize, visualize it and then do it. And she's like, no, this is your face when you're like pissed off and ready to argue. No, (laughs) it isn't. But now I'm aware of what it looks like to other people. That's a whole different message I did not want to be sending. Right. You have just hit on something so important, Teresa. And that is that assumptions are the termites of relationships. We assume or interpret what someone else is doing based on what it would mean for me if I was behaving that way. And that's that's, that's according to my strengths and my values and my skills and my personality and my emotional intelligence level and my critical thinking. So if you're a thinker, of course, that face is I'm processing. But if you're someone who is a defensive person who's low in emotional intelligence, which clearly you are not, <laughs> um, that could be what's going on. But it's really important to ask to simply ask, this is what I observed. Can you share with me, are my observations off base or or what was really going on in this situation? It amazes me when I listen to things that people say. So this one woman had said on Twitter that if people don't divulge a lot of personal information on their website about them, she would never hire them because they're not honest 
they're not trustworthy. And I thought, wow, that's quite a leap to say someone's not trustworthy because they don't divulge a lot of personal information. It could be just that they're introverted. It could be that they have a low Johari window, so they don't they don't disclose. They could be have a person personality that's very private, but maybe they share with people very openly and vulnerably when they when they first trust you or when they get to know you. There could be a lot of reasons. We could go on all day about why that is, <laughs> but that person's personality and how they're wired because they're very high disclosure. Assume that if you're not, then I can't trust you. Mm. Now, it might be that they don't have a values alignment and shouldn't work together anyway. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But assuming why someone is doing something, I promise you're going to be not, you're going to be incorrect 99% of the time. One time my husband booked a flight and somehow I found out that he booked a flight and I thought, I can't believe he's going on a trip and didn't tell me. And it's really easy to say, wow, he's doing something secretive, but he actually didn't tell me because he was planning on meeting me on a trip that I was going to surprise me. Uh, sorry, I'm just still trying to picture that face uh, of Teresa. I can, <laughs> I can picture several faces. Uh, and it reminds me of my wife, like when we first get together, she would always be looking on a, in a book or a phone as it is now. And she'd be reading this stuff and she'd have this really like cross pensive which is kind of how I'm imagining one of the faces you were describing there. And I was like, are you okay? What's wrong? You know, what, what's happened? Is something really bad? I'm just, oh no, I'm just reading and I'm just trying to process. I'm just trying to think through all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and even today, like when I see her, I'm like, is she all right? Or it's, oh no, she's just reading. Yeah. I, I don't even need to ask anymore, but it, it, it's funny. Um, in When you talked about the, the, the children's book, I love the idea that like inner child healing, that kind of work is something that I do. And so this idea that your book is both empowering children from the ground up, but also working the opposite way with to kind of heal or forgive or whatever those things are. So I love the, the balance there. Um, there was something I read in the blurb about it. I you do my research before we come on. And there was, it said something about a talent story and it was to do with these two one. I wondered if you could just share a little bit what that meant, because I worked in recruitment. So this idea of talent is, is interesting to me and, and in particular how it, equates to you know the children's books about values and, and gifts and strengths yeah so the the first book is about discovering your talents you've got gifts so at the back of every book i write i have a section for parents and a section for parents and caregivers because not everyone who lives with a child is their their parent um, for parents and caregivers and for teachers and so for example in you've got values some of the prompts in the back are talk about with your child a time that you made a decision using your values and a time that you made a decision that went an age an age appropriate I say story of a, a decision you made that went against your values and what happened and and so just really having that vulnerability to say hey I've I've made mistakes too because I think sometimes as parents, we forget, you know, if we're like 40 years old or 45 or however old we are, you know, we were 17 <laughs> and made a lot of dumb decisions. Mm -hmm. And our children never ha had that, that relationship with us during that time and don't have that context. So it's, it's a nice vulnerability. But they also, as part of those exercises, create their talent story. And it's giving the child handles to be able to say, 
I am caring, I am a discoverer, and I am a future thinker, or whatever their talent story is. After they read through and identify their talents, they build this little talent story, and it's a very short way for them to be able to articulate something about who they are. And then there's a values story, and there's a skills story, and there's a story with, and the last book is You've Got Personality. You've Got Quirks is not part of that series. It's just a separate one that someone gave me the idea to write after I'd written the initial four, which is essentially UMAP, right? Like the, the four books are, is UMAP in children's form. So there's also assessments that come with, with the books for UMAP teen, UMAP youth, and then of course for adults so that the kids can get this little report to stick up somewhere on their wall. I had my illustrator create a, a nice profile for them. But my daughter is seven and she did her UMAP youth. And it's been amazing to be able to know these things. Like what I do for a living, you would think that I would know my daughter inside and out. Because I do read people quite well, just as an occupational hazard for what I do. But I didn't know my daughter was competitive. And I don't know how I didn't know now that I've seen it. <laughs> and now I have the benefit of hindsight because it's everywhere. But I completely missed it but I'm not competitive. So I didn't know it. And it would be very easy for me to just push that aside and to say, oh, it's not important. Just go have fun and not really acknowledge her need to be the best at what she does. And that's not something I can talk her out of. That's the thing is you might say, well, it is important to just go and have fun. Well, you, ha you have a good time trying to convince someone who's naturally competitive that they should just <laughs> Try out for the Olympics and just worry about having fun. You're here. <laughs> I totally relate to that because <laughs> I was what I was thinking was I remember when I was told go and have fun and I would walk away going fun. <laughs> We're going out here to win. <laughs> like that is what's happening right now. Yeah. I'm going to no interest win. in being the first place loser. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably have fun kicking ass. That's what's about to happen right now. <laughs> I understood the sentiment, but I was like, that's secondary. Like, yeah, fun secondary. It wasn't, but you know, have, have, having fun is a value and it's my number four value. So when I would say to my daughter or to my son, just have fun, I value fun. Well, my son, who's now 20, I thought he was 19. My husband was like, no, he's 20. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he, he, he played football in high school and I did his UMAP and fun is nowhere to be found in the top 10 <laughs> values. And I'll, I remembered before he did UMAP driving him to football practice and he had a bad practice and he was in a really grumpy mood when I picked him up. And I said, you know, you're too hard on yourself. You should just go out there and have fun. And he looked at me and he said, mom, I don't play football to have fun. That didn't occur to me that you wouldn't play sports to have fun, but he doesn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Kristen, this has just been amazing. <laughs> so, so amazing. So thank you so very much. People are going to want to find more about you, follow you, stalk you in a good way, like obsessed in a good way. Stalk you in a good way. <laughs> yeah, stalk you in a good way. Exactly. I might be one of them. So <laughs> how can people get in touch with you? What might you have coming up that they can look forward to? 
So they can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm the Kristen Sherry in North Carolina. Actually, there's seven of those. So I'm in the Charlotte area. <laughs> we'll include the link. We'll include okay. the link. Yeah. Um, you can go to my UMAP, myyoumap.com and, and, and see me there. Uh, contact me there. What, as terms of what's coming, uh, Maximize 365 for adults, a year of actionable tips to transform your life. So if you want to improve your finances, your career, your relationships, your wellness, and your spiritual life, that's the book for you. And I have three children's books releasing this year. You've got values in March, you've got skills in July, and you've got personality in November, and you've got quirks releases in March of 2022. So we have lots of books to help your children build confidence through self-awareness. I can see it now. Reese will have all those books lined up <laughs> on the shelf. Yeah. Fine to see. <laughs> yeah. If you'd okay. like, I'm happy to give away uh, a signed copy for just for one of your listeners. Uh, You've Got Values is the one that's coming out in, in March. So if they um, write a review of your podcast or if they do some, you know, do a Amazing. post in your podcast, you can enter them to win and I'll just send me the address of whoever wins. You can pick the winner and I'll ship them a copy of my book. All right. You heard it here, folks. Thank you. It's very generous. Love it. All right. We close out our show with a rapid fire Q&A. Bring it on. Yes, that's what I like to hear. Are you ready for some fun? I've got my knee pads and elbow pads on. Let's go. Number one. Which emotion catches you off guard most often? Probably when someone gives me feedback that they hate one of my books and I'm wounded. <laughs> and what do you do to regulate that emotion in the moment? I recognize that not everyone is my audience and I have to keep focused on the people who, are, who I'm serving. What's next in your personal evolution? I'm going to try and run a 10K. I'm going to see how that goes. Number four, when your best friend is having a meltdown, what do you say to them? First of all, I remind them of what is the outcome you're looking for and is the way you're handling this going to lead to the outcome you want? And I help them kind of take a step back and work backwards towards the goal. A little sprinkle of objectivity. Very yeah. Nice. yeah. Okay. Number five, in this moment, what are you most looking forward to or most hopeful for? Well, I'm running a 5K on Saturday with Carrie Twig, and so I'm really excited about that. And I'm hoping that I can run it in 27 minutes or less. <laughs> yeah, you can. You said it. Everybody heard it. I can. I will. It's done. Thank you so much for being here with us today, sharing your wisdom, your stories, your work. I really just thank you. I feel very blessed to do the work I do and very blessed that you invited me to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you you're bearing with us. And then it's been a, a labor of love trying to get this uh, in the can, if you will. But, uh, you know, I'm so glad we did. There's so much there for our listeners and for me and for Teresa and definitely for my daughter. Uh, I will definitely be checking out all four or five of those uh, those books soon. So can't wait. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of TNT. Please share, subscribe, rate and review. And when you're ready for your personal evolution, check out Reese at trueselfcoaching.com. And for your emotional intelligence revolution, check out Teresa at iqeqtq.com.